We could all use a little inspiration. Today, I'm going to bring you a lot of it. Joining me in studio, it is Jack Zimmerman. And if you're not familiar with who Jack is, well, he was raised here in southern Minnesota in a small town, joined the Army, and became a uh, member of the legendary 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles. Spent nine months in heavy combat in Afghanistan, and while on foot patrol, stepped on an IED, that is an improvised explosive device. I think most Americans are very familiar with that, right? And uh, he lost both of his legs and nearly his life, and he wrote a fantastic book called Five Minutes. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, but I want this whole story, literally, from the beginning right through his experience until he wound up here back home. It, it, it's incredible. And if you've not had a chance to read the book, I, I, I highly suggest you do that. We'll give uh, Jack a chance to uh, tell you where you can find that. You can find it basically anywhere, right? Uh, but, but we'll give you a chance to uh, head over to his website and uh, check out everything else that's going on in his life. He's a motivational speaker. And uh, again, it is, it, it's just a privilege to have him here with us today to tell the story. This is why I got into broadcast right here. So we're going to take it from the ground up. And this is riveting stuff. So get ready. Where did you go to boot camp? Yeah, so uh, I left out of Sioux Falls uh, and I went down to Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, when I joined, uh, I wanted to be in the infantry and you know, I want to be on the front lines and all that. And so the home of the infantry is Fort Benning. And uh, I left down there in uh, September of 2009 and uh, went down there and did base training, uh, 13 weeks of base training infantry school and uh, graduated right around the Christmas time. And uh, the one thing when I joined the military that I want to do that um, I I said I, I wanted, the only way I'm joining the military is I want to learn how to jump out of planes. I, I, right. I just couldn't believe I was going to get paid to do that, right? And uh, so I, I joined the military, jumped out, of, learned how to jump out of planes then for the whole month of uh, January. And uh, it's kind of funny when I explain airborne school, I say the first week is ground week where you practice falling on the ground, you know, as if you're falling from a parachute. The next week they teach you how to jump out of the plane. And then the third week is jump week. And they always say that between uh, landing on the ground and getting out of the plane, you'll figure out everything in between. You Isn't know? it funny how most people, <laughs> when they think of airborne, uh, they think of guys that like just parachute that they see out in public. But... I've seen those guys hit. They hit hard. Yeah, it's right. About, You're coming down fast because you don't want to get shot at. Right? right. Yeah, it's about 30 miles an hour. You hit the ground. It's hard. It hurts every time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I always joke though. I'd rather get to the ground quick in a in a gunfight than than yeah. be hanging around up in the sky. You right. Know? No but, kidding. Uh, yeah, you hit hard. You have different techniques that you use, and uh, things can definitely go wrong. A lot of guys get banged up, end up in the trees or whatever. But. Uh, um, you know, obviously, it's worked out for us in the past before. You're right. We're in America. So I, ha cool. I have to ask. In your mindset, what inspired a young guy to go to the recruiting office and say, I want to get up front and I want to be in the shed? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I was going to school when 9-11 happened. You know, I watched all the, I watched the towers fall and, and everything that happened, you know, unfolded from all that. And I watched, you know, I was too young to ever go at the time. You know, I was just in middle school. And I watched, you know, all these guys shipping off. And you'd watch the at night, you know, I remember watching the news and, and seeing these names of guys that were killed. And I remember there was a ranger here from Minnesota that was killed very early on in the war. And I remember just all the news that was about it. And uh, I remember Veterans Day growing up at my school. You know, I remember watching the guys carry the flags in. And, and when I looked at those guys, I thought, man, that's, that, that is what a man looks like. You know, right. this, is, this, is, this is the men of men, you know. And I always wanted to be that person, but I never really knew how to join. I never really had anybody close to me or anything like that. 
Did and, did did service run in your family? Um, like both my grandfathers served, you sure. know, but I, you know, they never really ever talked about their service. I never met my one grandfather. He passed before I was even born, and uh, you know, I just was kind of working around here, and and uh, there's a, a guy that I was working with that he was in the reserves and stuff, and I talked to him a little bit about it, and he's like, just go to the recruiter station and talk to him, buddy, you know, and and I ended up going down there, and and. And I always wanted to say that I, I did my part, you know. I mean, as long as I mean, I fought in the longest war in American history, you know, literally. Yeah, yes. yeah. And uh, I didn't want to be like I am now, thirty years old, and, and look back and go, "I was going to join, but I didn't because right. I was too busy partying. I was too busy this." And I've always been a very patriotic person. I love this country more than I would say most people. <laughs> I really do, and I just couldn't imagine. Uh, sitting in the wagon the whole time. I want to get out and push, you know? Right. And it's nice. It's, I think you understand this. When you get to the closer to the end of your life, you're never going to have to look back and wonder if you made a difference. Right. Right. And it's cool to be part of that fraternity and that community of men and women who went out and did that. Yeah. And I mean, when you're joining the infantry, I mean, you do have to weigh a lot of things. You know, obviously, when you're a 20 year old kid, you're not weighing the thought of dying as much, but. It definitely crosses your mind, and and uh, I th I thought to myself, you know, dying on the battlefield, fighting for my country to make the world a better place at 20 years old sounds better than living a, a average life of of coming home, working a nine to five job the rest of my life, and passing away at 85, right? Quietly in the middle of the night, you right? Know? And I've always, you know, I think, you know, looking at things, being you know a veteran myself, I think that they get us at the right time. And you know what? You need to, right? But when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you're not thinking about the future, right? And you've got all that going inside you and you're primed to fight, yeah. right? And always, that's when they get us, right? Yeah, I always joke, yeah. you know, the future for 18 or 19-year-old kid is when is the next pay period up? Right, right. <laughs> you know, that's the future. That you know? is what the am honest I gonna do to God I, truth. Yeah, so, what am I going to do when I get paid next? So let's go back. Now, Now, now you're you're down at Fort Benning. You've been to boot camp. Yep. Uh, you, you, you've been to jump school. Yep. Now in the uh, army, it's what what because in the Marine Corps it was we went to infantry school, then we had MCT and all these different other things. So, yeah. what follows when, once you're uh, done with airborne school? How do you wind up at a unit? Yeah, so actually, like the day that we finished airborne school, we literally went and got our wings pinned on us that morning. Uh, we go back to the area to our barracks area, our, our formation area. We formed up, and uh, they started calling people's names. How did you find out you were in the with the Screaming Eagles? Right, that's that. Yeah, that's so we're all up in this in the area by the barracks there. They're calling everybody's names out, and if, if I was Zimmerman, so I was you know one of the last right, ones right. to get called up. And I run up there, and, and uh, you get your folder, and you take like five steps away from where you get your folder, and you open it up, and right there's your orders to where you're going. And uh, I had been told I was going to Vincenza, Italy. Uh, they just got back from Afghanistan. They took a bunch of casualties and stuff over there, and. Uh, one of my incentives to joining was I got to pick my where, where I was going. Right. And uh, when I opened my orders, I was expecting to see Italy. And then I thought, well, if not Italy, I bet I'm going to Fort Bragg, being a, a you know guy just graduating jump school. And I opened it up, and I was like, I guess I'm going to the 101st <laughs> Airborne Division, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. That, how and, cool is that, though, right? I mean, such a historic unit. Yeah, and the, really, it worked out great. I mean, it was honestly the closest base that I could really get, you know, being in the infantry, you know, being from Minnesota. I was you know, I was about as close as I could get. You know, it's twelve right. hours from home, and and uh, once I knew I was going to Hunter first, I was like, man, that's pretty cool. I'm joining a history or a, a unit with a lot of I really mean, cool history. Because military guys, a lot of us immediately think of that photograph of Eisenhower yeah. talking to those guys. 
uh, prior to the invasion of Normandy, right? The, the D-Day, right? Yeah. And that picture of him standing there with all those guys gathered around telling him, except nothing less than complete victory. Right. Right. And like you had talked about earlier, a lot of them guys wound up landing in chicken coops, out in swamps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all over the place, right? Right. But it, that was the real beginning of the historic uh, reputation that they have. And then I was going to say, when you found out you got to be part of that, Right. And all of what they did in Vietnam Insane. and just oh my God, yeah, it's just crazy. And we still we still fight with that with that that history and and, and you ha- you you fight with a different Well, you got a chip on your shoulder. Yeah, I mean, right? Yeah. yeah. And you, and I mean it's kinda like you you know, you always feel like those guys are kind of standing over your shoulder judging you in a sense. Being, I felt that yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's a great analogy. <laughs> being like, you know, are you are you living up to what we what we actually do? You know, right. are you are you every day you wake up you think about those guys that, that went through and did what they did and we're looking at going on a one-year deployment we know when we're going to be coming home we know all these these fixed things right we have satellite imaging right these guys jumped in in the middle of the night with nothing right and they said we're good right we got this exactly (laughs) and it's inspiring it really is and at the same time you feel like they're there they're with you right yeah and it's it's a strange feeling that you'd have to experience to really understand yeah and kind of to add to all this uh one of the coolest parts of my story then is is actually on june 6th uh d-day uh i got to deploy to afghanistan then of that's crazy i didn't know that so those guys were on post that day i mean post is just buzzing you know yeah Uh, and all those guys come back and um you know those guys. Those guys were the ones that were giving us the the hoorah. You know, go kill the Taliban uh, right. speeches as we were rolling out. You know, and I mean, how do you not walk onto a plane with so much pride and ambition and excitement to go fight for your country? From right. uh, those guys just telling you, like, you. I mean, if those guys can jump in and do what they did, I, I should be easily be able to get on this plane and go right. do what I need to do. So then, the next step is deployment. Yeah. You load up, what'd you get on? Yeah, so we just get on a regular commercial flight. It's super awkward, you know, you're carrying your gun and right. all your stuff onto this plane and, and uh, you sit down and, and uh, I remember uh, Doc gave us a little something to help us sleep along the way, you right. know, and uh, we took off and I remember waking up many, many, many hours later and stewardess like, you hungry, you know, whatever, you know, we're serving lunch, you know, and they just, it's like a regular commercial flight, you know, with all your buddies on it. And we ended up landing in Kyrgyzstan then and um that's kind of where we got our you know our ammo got loaded up did some paperwork and uh that's where we jumped on the military cargo planes and uh, made our way into kandahar now now when you got there what was the atmosphere like when you got off the plane yeah i mean when we got into kandahar we knew the surge was on i mean this place was busy right i mean uh you know they didn't know where they're gonna put guys to sleep they didn't know this they didn't know that and it was very busy. And then basically they're like, we don't know where you're going to sleep, but you're not going to be here long. Right. And uh, we need to be there for a little while. We realized that right away when we got off the plane, uh, we couldn't hardly, couldn't hardly breathe. The elevation change, you know, going from Fort Campbell, Kentucky to uh, up on a mountain, basically, of Afghanistan, you know. And so with that elevation change, we're walking off the, the tarmac, carrying my bags and trying to get, catch a breath of air, you know, it was right. so hard to breathe. And so we took some time to climatize and get used to the heat. You know, it's the middle of summer in Afghanistan when we're right. getting there. And so we get in there and uh, we're, we're told we're going out to a, a, an area of operations called the Zari district. And the Zari district would be like a county for us is how we, in America, how we look at it. it would be a county. And then uh, we were in the Kandahar Providence, which would be like the state, you know, like we're here in Minnesota. So big Kandahar, Minnesota, and then obviously in the country of Afghanistan. And 
the wild thing about Afghanistan is, is, is we look at it such a big battlefield, but really you could fit the whole country of Afghanistan inside Texas, you know? So wow. it's, it's big, but it's not, you know, as big as, you know, we think of when we're here in America. Right. And, um, we were going into the Zari district and the Zari district was the home of the Taliban. No Americans had been in there yet. And, um, we we air salted in and we started building a base on the north side of highway one and they shot mortars at us and they shot at us for a while out there and uh the real action started as soon as we literally they kind of the line in the sand was highway one if as soon as we crossed the line in the sand and that's when the fighting was on and, and we pushed across and we gun fought our way down to the river and uh, we took bases along the way and built them up and and um in the fall then in september i believe it was we had operation dragon strike which was the largest coalition mission between Afghan and American troops, we we joined forces together and uh, run out the Taliban from basically their backyard, and we we're gonna try to push everybody up to the highway so we could do checkpoints and try to stop the flow of, of arms that were coming out of these different countries going into the Helmand Providence and our Providence and trying to get them before we could had to right. fight against them, you know. And uh, that, that that went on for a long time, and and uh, that was kind of our fall or our summer and fall was just gunfighting day in day out. So did you have any time from the time you got off the plane there? Well, I mean, I was, I'm, if we digress yeah. just for a second here, at what point did you realize that it wasn't training anymore? I mean, because that fear sets in, right? I mean, when you're getting shot at, do you have time to even think about that? Your uh, life's on the line at this point. Yeah, I mean, at first it's probably a little bit, uh, you know, you're looking for so much direction. You're looking to your leaders so right. much for guidance through those times in the beginning. You know, uh, you really just don't want to make a mistake in the beginning. You know, I think that's the biggest thing I realized as as time went on and, and you kept fighting and fighting is in the beginning, you didn't want to make a mistake to jeopardize the mission or anybody that you're with, right? And you have this uh, fear of every step you take. You do have to look for an IED, you know, <clears throat> and you're trying to run these missions and things. But as time goes on, you get more and more confident and you've been fighting with these guys day in and day out for so long. Uh, you, you find a sense of confidence and a sense of calm and a sense of I've done this before. Um, and uh, like we were just talking about at 20 years old, you know, you look at things right. yourself who you were then and you have the American flag on your shoulder. You're not really scared of much, you know, right. um, you, we did feel like we were the baddest, you know, MFers on the battlefield, you know, and, and really there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, once we've, once we've been through a couple of them, you're pretty confident when your team there tells you to move bound, do whatever it is instinct kicks in and you just you know that's what makes us the greatest country in the world and know? a lot of people don't understand that through generations that uh all, all the that that fighting instinct and all of that goes with it is passed down from these guys in their units from one to the next to the next to the next so you had a lot of guys there that were leading you at that time yeah that and then it was going to be your, at some point, it would be your generation that would pass it to the next, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that kind of confidence. It's kind of the whole, like, you know, when your mom said to you as you're, when you were a kid, you know, if your friends jumped off a bridge, were you? Would you? You know, you're like, yeah, yeah, I think I would. You know, so it's, it's kind of the same <laughs> right. thing in the military. You know, if your friends jumped over the wall to start bounding, would you? You know, you're not going to sit there and be left behind and be nervous or scared. I never really was the person that was ever you know, oh, no, I'm, I'm worried about this. Right. I'm worried about that. You know, I was a saw gunner. I love being in the fight. Uh, heck, I made fun of the snipers. I would sit up on the hill watching us. You know, you got guys moving here and moving there. You guys should come down the streets and join the party. Right. Know? So you you carried an M249? Yeah, I carried a saw. Really? Yeah. And I carried about 1,200 rounds on me all the time. And, and I always try to come back with about 100. <laughs> right. So 
Now, so you didn't get a lot of downtime when you got when you landed in Afghanistan, and you were out and, and you made your way out. You were you were right into the fight. Yeah, we were in the fight day in day out. You know, and the fighting really didn't slow down till no middle of November, December. About this time, the fighting slowed down, and um, you know it was every single day. You know, we were into we were into something. You know, and you just have to realize that there's just thirty of us in a platoon. Um, Somebody has to be pulling security all the time. Sure. I mean, like, so I, I don't think people realize that. They, you know, you were on doing something about 20 hours a day, and you yep. had about four hours of personal time a day, and that was to sleep, eat, shower, write a letter. You know, there really wasn't much for phones or internet. I mean, being the first ones there, there was nothing really established. So, I mean, once every two weeks, it would be nice to call home or get a hot meal or right. get some laundry changed out or whatever it may be. But a lot of times, you know, we're, we're using these – you know, clear bags with a little hose on them for a shower, you know, and you'd leave them, leave them out in the sun. <laughs> Dude, to I, I to totally know what you're you know, talking try about. To heat yeah. them up to 40, you know. Right. It's just a, you know, how it right. rains Just about freezing. Yeah. <laughs> right. I you know. Because I don't think people realize how cold it gets at night out there, you know. And But, yeah, we did a lot of fighting down there. And, and I experienced my worst uh, my worst day in Afghanistan then was at the end of October. Um, and in the middle of October, I, had, I got a call across the radio that uh, – my best friend Land, his daughter was just born, and um, and I got to tell him how Riley was born. Uh, she weighed this much. She was this long. Mom's doing great. You know, we were all excited for him, and and uh, fifteen days went by, and I was up in a guard tower then, and uh, my platoon sergeant came out and said, "Hey, do you want to uh, get Land to a, a mountain called Gundy Gar? It's a man-made mountain in the, in the middle of the Argandab River Valley for Alexander the Great, so he could look over the whole Argandab River Valley." And we built a base on top of it, and uh, we really couldn't get helicopters into where we were in where we were at, and so we were going to load up in trucks and go to the base of Gundy Guard, get them there, and get them on a helicopter. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to volunteer, and I volunteered for everything. I, I loved, <laughs> I just loved every, I just loved everything about being a soldier. And any chance I got to go on a mission or do anything, I was all about it. And uh, for my best friend, getting him out of there that, to go home and see his daughter, there was not a mission that was more important to me uh, while I was over there, honestly. And uh, uh, we loaded up in trucks and I was in the last truck and we had to go to this one village. And, uh, as we're coming into the village, we see guys running out in the field and we knew that something, <laughs> something was going to happen, you know? And, uh, we're trying to push through the town. And I remember the third, we were, as we're going through town, the first truck went over the mill is culvert in town. The second truck went over the third truck went boom and it got blown to the sky. And this truck didn't have, wasn't a, a, one of our, a normal truck that you would see. It had like a, a camera with a 50 cal mount on the top. And um, you use a screen in the back seat to, to aim and shoot and, you know, do all that. And uh, so usually when ID we went off, whoever was in the gun would say, hey, everybody in the truck is okay or they're not okay. But we couldn't really get a good sense if everybody was okay or not because there wasn't anybody actually in the gun that were in the truck. So finally the hatch opened up and everybody started crawling out. Yep, we're good. And everybody started getting out of the trucks. And I remember us calling up to the company on the – radio from my truck that everybody was all right we're gonna try to recover this truck and get out of town and uh the one truck we tried backing up to it was a uh, was a mrap and uh, we had mraps and matvs two of each and um and matv had blown blown up and an matv was out in front there's an mrap right right in the middle of those two and i was in an mrap in the back and they're trying to drag it out with a with a one mrap and it just didn't have enough power to drag it and uh so we're, so we're trying to hook up this um matv to try to drag this truck to the edge of town and uh they backed up to as they're back up to that truck land was down in the ditch you know signaling come on back 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 and uh he stepped on a pressure plate right down there in the ditch 
and uh, killed him instantly. I seen him come rolling out, but the problem was everybody else was on the ground trying to recover this truck. So everybody else was pretty much wounded. And uh, there's three of us left basically that weren't wounded. It's at some capacity. We had to get everybody else out of there and, and uh, you know, get land, you know, uh, ready to go home. And uh, how do you, at, at, at yeah. this point, stop. Because yeah. what, how are you guys thinking of getting out of there? That's, I mean, are you being shot at? No, we weren't. We weren't taking any rounds at this time. Okay. You know, um, we, Vanden Bosch, who was in the in the in my truck at the time when the ID went off, uh, he had been in country two weeks. Sure. <laughs> uh, you know, the other guys that were there were banged up to some capacity. You know, some guys just had shrapnel through their legs. You know, real bad. Some guys tore stuff up in their knees, or they were standing on the other side of the truck. You know, and then there was guys that were closer to the blast that had more serious injuries and things, and. Uh, you know, my buddy Corb, who was backing the truck up, his arm was basically, you know, blown off, and and you know, it's it was a it was a it was a rough day, you know. Right. And the whole reason we were out there, you know, was land, you know, was land, you know. And right. He's, he's no longer with us now, you know. And so abort mission, you know, we turned around and picked up <laughs> the four of us or whatever that ended up going back. Uh, you know, we just drove back to the base, and that was kind of the end of the day. And how were, how do you go back? and relay that message right because you were the first one to know yeah there was nobody right. that knew other than you guys knew right but i mean when you're thinking about how do you go back and relay that message and then get it home yeah um it was really hard you know especially as a kid you know i never experienced anything like sure. this before you know i had hardly even felt loss in my life you know even up to this point you know and uh I just remember calling home and being like, hey, you know, we had a really bad day the other day and, uh, you know, land's not, land's no longer here, you know, I mean, it's as simple as that, you know, and I'm pretty sure that they had all been notified to some extent, you know, that we had took another casualty in the unit and stuff from the family readiness group or whatever back home, but uh, it was probably one of, the hard, one of the hardest phone calls I ever had to make was just calling home and being like, hey, right. my best friend was killed, you know, and, and, it, and, and it was really hard also because... We can't change anything that had happened, right? But there's still my family knowing that my best friend was killed, and I had very, told them very little of what I was doing over there. We were just hanging out. <laughs> That's pretty much right. what I would say. Well, what's going on over there? Oh, we're just hanging out, waiting for something to happen. Because you don't want them to worry, right? Right. right. And uh, once they figured out that land was killed, then I, it, it made me very uncomfortable knowing that everybody else back home that their alertness or their level of worry had been heightened. Then. Did you feel as homesick at that point? Did you want to at least? No, I felt the exact opposite. You, I wanted to did go you want to go out and take it to these guys, Accountability, right? yeah, yeah, accountability. That's, it's incredible. So you you head back. You guys got out of there. Yep. Where does it go from there? Yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously we have our own ceremony and stuff for him over there and whatever, and, and uh, he went home and had his funeral and everything, and we had to push on, you know. I mean, the next day we were right. out patrolling, doing our thing, finding the guys that, that did what they did to him, you know, and uh, the fighting really slowed down then as the as the fall went on, and and um, uh, January, New Year's Day kicked off again. The fight was on, and we fought and fought and fought, and uh, we were at a base called Cop Omicron, we were really getting this place set up. And like I said before, I deployed, I was an electrician and we had nothing down there. And so we literally built the floors, put the tents up. I wired everything and I just kind of ran this. I was like, we have everything we need here. Let's just, in our free time, let's build our own base, you know, because the engineers right. couldn't even get down there. There just wasn't enough people. There wasn't enough 
to even escort him down there or anything, you know? And so we built these bases and then it was early February and uh, I always joke, that's how I keep track of things in my life. I was somewhere between the Super Bowl and the Daytona 500. I came home <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I came home uh, back here to Mankato and uh, I was, I was 21. I turned 21 in Afghanistan. Um, I went downtown. I, loved, I did the whole, you know, 21st experience with my friends here and, and had a great time while I was home. I got to see everybody. Um, but you had experienced things that they can't even fathom. Um, the first night that we came home, um, my dad's boss had given us tickets to the wild game. And uh, me and my fiance at the time, Megan, um, we went to uh, the hockey game. And um, I just remember, because this is the first time she's seen me since I've been home, you know. It's the first night I was home. And uh, I remember sitting there, and this even the beer guy that was walking down, you know, the aisle selling beers, you know. I was sitting there watching the game, and and he came down, and he was right over my left shoulder, and I was sitting right on the edge of the row, and he's like, "Cold beer here," you know, the old yeah. You know, and man, I about jumped out of my seat. You know, I didn't know why this guy was yelling behind. It just I was I was in such a high. I didn't even realize how high alert I was still on, you know. And I remember um, walking um, from the Excel Energy Center down to the bars downtown in uh, St. Paul there. And I remember realizing that I was looking inside every single car to see if the center console had wires yanked out of it, if, right. the, if the center, if the steering column had any wires hanging out of it, just just waiting for a car to go off, you know. Because two weeks before I just came home, we were standing on Highway One looking for vehicle-borne IEDs. The only way you can find a vehicle-borne IED is to look inside the vehicle. So, I mean, right. you're literally looking for bombs, you know, to go off in your face, basically looking inside every car. So, I just, just, you know. Uh, I didn't realize on how high alert I was at the time until, you know, reflecting back, you know, time later, you know, and uh, my two weeks went on. It was a great break. And I always joke the best thing I ever did before I, I went back to Afghanistan was I got down on a knee and I asked my wife to marry me. And I said, will you marry me? And can I get a ride to the airport in the morning? I'm a real <laughs> romantic guy, you know. And uh, she said yes. And uh, I went back to Afghanistan and um, it took me a little time to get back. You know, I have to go back through Kuwait and all this stuff. And, and I finally got linked up with my guys. And it took me about a week to get back. And um, we've been run, we've been around the base doing some stuff. And and uh, it was March 9, 2011, this day was. And I remember waking up. And I was up in a guard tower super early that morning. And uh, it was probably like, I don't know, 8 o'clock probably in the morning or so. And I got relieved out of the guard tower. And I remember grabbing my gear. And I had my rifle in one hand. And I had my my gear and stuff in my other hand and I was walking down and when he came out of that tower, it was about the closest tower you could get to where our tent was. And I walked around the corner and in the front of our tent, there was this big awning that hung over it, over to some like dirt um, barriers that we had. It's kind of like a, a shade, you know? And that's where everybody would kind of hang out was under that shade because if you were wanting to talk or visit or do anything, you shouldn't be in the tent because we were, like I said, we were running 20 on 40 off schedules, you know? And so if you were in the tent, you were sleeping. And I remember going in the tent and setting all my stuff down, and I walked up to the whiteboard, and the whiteboard is what told us what we are going to do for the day, you know, what, what, what missions or equipment or whatever you had to do. And I seen that I was going on patrol later that day, so I left and I went back out uh, to the porch or whatever, and I was visiting with the guys, and I said, hey, I'm going to go lay down for a little bit. And so I went and laid down, took my boots off, and I was going through my camera, and I was deleting old pictures that I didn't want anymore. And the last picture... I ended up taking on my cameras. I went, I hit the picture button to go back to the main screen, and I see my feet were crossed on the end of my bunk. And for whatever reason, I was like, I'm going to take a picture of this. You know, I'm just chilling in my bunk. 
I snapped a picture of my feet crossed at the end of my bunk, and and uh, my team leader comes in early, and he says, "Hey, get, let's get ready. We gotta go, go get the mission brief." So I grabbed all my stuff, and I went and listened to the mission brief. And we're gonna go up to the top of this village. I was right outside of our base, and um, on the on the west side of our base was the largest Taliban graveyard in the whole whole world, and then on the east side of our base was the village <laughs> that they all lived in, and. Uh, they said, we're going to the top of this village, and we think this is where they're going in and out of to grab all their weapons, their IED-making materials. This is their cache. We're going to go steal it from them. I said, this sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's go make their day horrible, <laughs> you know? And uh, so we, we geared up and we pushed out. And uh, our team was in the front, and I was, you know, when we walk, we walk kind of like how geese fly, you know? You have your team leader in the front, and you have your saw gunner, which would be me, on one side or the other, and then you have your two riflemen and a grenadier on the other side, you know? And then you'll have support people in the middle, you know, your radio guy, your medic, uh, your platoon leader, platoon sergeant, whoever's out there with sure. you. And then usually we go out with another team behind them. So two teams and then everybody else in between, you know. And so our team was on point this day and uh, we're pushing out and we're kind of pushing to this village and we stop and pop through these other villages. And there's just little things. And I think that, you know, it could go one of two ways. You know, there's little things that I seemed off that day, you know, but if something bad goes happen and you look back in hindsight, you could look at things to be indicators, you know, could have really been anything. Maybe, maybe not, you know, but like the one kid that was always at this village, he wasn't there that day. You know, where was he? I don't know. Did it mean that I was going to get blown up? Maybe, maybe not. We start doing all these little things in your head, you know, after you right. we pushed on, we ended up getting really, we're getting really close, closing on this cache. We're probably 200, 250 meters from this cache now. And we're rolling up on the north side of this village, and there's this giant dirt berm on the north end of the village. And it's probably six, eight feet tall. And my team leader says, hey, run up on that berm and make sure there's not a bunch of guys <laughs> laying on the other side of that thing waiting to ambush us, you know? Right. So I ran up on top of that berm, and and I seen two guys run into town through the trees, you know? And it's, it's like I said, it's it's March, so there's really no, tr no, no foliage on the trees or anything. Yes, you can kind of see them run through the branches and stuff running back there. And I called up right away. I was like, hey, we got two guys running, and they're definitely up to no good, you know? And uh, he's uh, he's like, well, keep an eye on what to watch for buildings to go into. And right as I did that, I looked down, and there was an IED right right in front of me on the ground, like buried in the, this berm, you know? And I think what, I think what they were going to do is they were going to shoot at us, draw us, and jump on that berm and then blow the berm, you know? That's kind of, in theory, what I thought they were trying to do. And so I ran all the way to the end of that berm, and – my team leader Sergeant Hurley went out, put a charge on that IED, and he blew that IED up right there to basically make it, you know, not dangerous anymore. And as soon as he blew that IED up, they started shooting at us, thinking we were shooting at them. And we had a little gunfight go off for a while, and we were gunfighting. And uh, all of a sudden, I didn't know they were coming, but the Kiowas came screaming over my head and started throwing hellfires in all the buildings. And it's kind of like when you get a kickback and take it easy, right? You know? And uh, those guys, you know, that we just hung out for a little bit, and they said since we didn't get shot with any automatic weapons or anything, we weren't going to go chasing into town, and we're going to go back to our base, grab more ammo, water. We'll take a different approach to it. So now they did what's called the reverse order movement, and now my team was in the back. So the team that was in the back on the way out is now going to take the form, take the mission over, and they're going to run it from the front and get us home. And so we decided we're going to head get some some standoff from this village. So we we start going north to get away from it. And we, we push up, and there's this ditch that kind of runs into town from the north. We finally found a good place to cross this ditch, and we all started jumping across. And I was the last guy to jump across because I was pulling rear security for everybody being a machine gunner. And uh, 
I jumped across a ditch and and I was on the right flank on the way out there. We just took contact from this village and now it's on our left side. So Sergeant Hurley being the team being the team leader and still to this day I believe he made the right decision. He says, "Hey, why don't you go on the left side? You know, let's put our let's put our firepower on the side that we think we're going to take the heat from." You know. And uh, so, so I was, I was getting over on the left side, and like I said, I was the last guy to cross the ditch. So I'm trying to hurry up and get caught back up. And I'm running literally in my buddy Abbott's footsteps, and uh, we're running along. And, and our interpreter carries a radio, you know, or, or an earpiece, in, and he can hear the Taliban talking on their radios, but they can't hear us. And uh, he says, where, "Where do you think they're?" And, and he says, uh, "Hey, the, we're getting ICOM chatter from the interpreter that they're going to attack us again." And I said, hey, Sergeant Hurley, where do you think they're going to hit us from? And he says, I don't know, Jackie boy. I don't, wham, I stepped right on that IED right out there in the field. And uh, when I stepped on it, you know, you hear people say, you know, you hear the metal clank or you hear this or you hear that. I didn't hear anything. <laughs> I just, I just went for a ride. And uh, do you, you remember being in the air? Being- I, I was, I was honestly, I've, I've uh, <laughs> not trying to sound like a tough guy or anything, but I've never right. been knocked out in my life. You know, I stayed right. conscious through this whole thing, you know? And uh, I step on this thing. I just feel myself go just, I mean, just like a, the fastest jolt you ever felt in your whole life, you know. And I immediately I knew something was wrong, you know. And I could feel myself flying through the air, you know. And I could feel the heat crawl up my back. It felt like 10,000 little finger pricks, you know, just crawling up my back. And uh, I just remember flipping and flipping and flipping. And it felt like a dream, you know. When you're having a dream and you feel like you're falling and you can't wake up, you know. That's really what it felt like. And all of a sudden, I landed. And I always joke, thank God I landed on my neck because that's all I had left to <laughs> land on. And I remember landing on my neck, and I felt my shoulder sink into my left side, and I felt my shoulder pop. And um, I was laying there, and I was looking at my whole left arm. And I couldn't. I was having a really hard time seeing, and I couldn't figure out why, but I had so much blood and mud already on my glasses that I couldn't hardly see out of them. Couldn't hear anything. My ears are just buzzing like, you know, crazy. I'm trying to look at my left arm. And as I'm looking over there, I can just see blood running on the back side of it. And I'm like, Damn, I need a tourniquet. So my first aid kit was on my left side. And I'm trying to reach back to get in my first aid kit, but I can't I can't get back there because my shoulder just broke when I landed, you know? Right. My arm's all messed up. My hand wouldn't work. So I'm like, man, I know I got one in my night vision pouch. So I'm trying to dig in my night vision pouch on my right side while I'm still just looking at my left arm, trying to figure out what's how bad it is, you know? I'm like, why can't I get this dang night vision pouch open? And I look over, and my arm's hanging down at a 90-degree angle in the middle of my forearm. And every time my heart beats, I can just see blood spraying on my forearm, you know? And I'm like, oh, man, my arm's blowing off. <laughs> right. I'm in tough shape. You know, talk about SOL, you know, being shit luck. Because there's just, nobody nobody aiding you at this point because nobody's got to you, right? Right. And about this time, I look up, and I can just see red tr- streaks going over my head. So now I know that we're in a gunfight, you know, but I can't hear anything yet. You know, I can just see the red streaks going over. So I know we're, we're shooting at somebody because I can see the tracer rounds, you know? And all of a sudden, I see my buddy Daniel's out of, like, the lower corner of my eye because I'm laying in the crater. I have no idea my legs are hurt yet, and I got all my gear on. And uh, Daniel's come sliding in, and he slides in on top of me and immediately starts going to work on me, you know. And he's turning kitten off my left arm. He's turning kitten off my right arm. And this whole time he's turning kitten me, I'm like, man, you got to get off my boys. You're pinching my stuff. It felt like he's kneeling right on my, right. Know, right on my, sure. right on my goods between the legs, you know. And this whole time, and uh, what he was doing is he had his knees on my femoral arteries on my legs, trying to slow the bleeding down on my legs while he was trying to kick my arms. Because a lot of people don't know that that area in your groin, you will bleed to death in a hurry if you don't cut that off. So fast. Yeah. And so he's trying to do that. And uh, obviously I'm hurting. You know, everybody's like, how, you know, it must have been horrible, horrendous, you know, but there's so much going on that, like, yeah, it hurts, but it's kind of like, 
it's almost like when you stub your toe on the corner of the bed, you know, it's there's just that one spot, that tiny spot that hurts so bad that's all you can focus on. Right. There was just so much that hurt <laughs> that sure. you couldn't really focus on one spot, you know. I felt really hot. I felt really tingly. I felt like uh I felt like I'd been hit with a baseball bat in the head, you know. I mean, that's really what it felt like, you know? And I was just trying to figure out what was going on, the chaos. People started showing up more, you know, and Daniels was working on me. And then about that time, Doc slid in. And Doc slid in on my right side. And right away, the first thing he did was cut my gear off all of me, right? And so he cut my rack off, pulled my tabs on my plate, threw my plates off to the side. And as soon as he threw my plates off, that's when I thought I was going to get up out of there. We're going to bounce somewhere else so I could get behind something instead of laying out in this middle of the field eating rounds. You know, we can get out of here. Right. So I went to sit up to get out of there. And that's when I looked at my right leg. And that's the first thing I seen when my right leg was just gone. Just gone. I mean, almost right at the hip you know it's just gone and my left leg from the knee down was there i'll never forget how bright white that bone was the meat and everything was just clean blown off it and uh that's when i realized i was in pretty tough shape you know and i sat back and i was just kind of trying to process everything that i was just seeing you know i was trying to be trying to be like all right i gotta stay calm you know i gotta fight through this and i remember my guys trying to talk to me you know they're just saying anything me and daniels were going to move in together and we got back to fort campbell and he's like you're still bringing the couch right you know and just trying to find <laughs> anything to talk about you could think of you know and i was like man i just can't talk anymore I remember how thirsty i was i was ready i was gonna i mean i would have killed somebody for something just a drop of water you know and right. finally I, I i complained enough that doc gave me some water and on some gauze and he shoved that in the corner of my mouth and i was sucking on that and I was just getting more and more tired. And I just remember I had, to, I had to do something to stay awake. So I told myself, left, right, left, right, just like you did when you marched, you know. And that's how I was shaking my head, left, right, left, right, just moving my head back and forth, trying to make a conscious effort to stay alive. Breathing was getting really, really hard. Uh, every time I breathed, I had to pay attention so I could focus on breathing to try to get a breath air in. And uh, those guys are still just working on me. And I just remember, like, ratcheting stuff down. I had a ratchet strap going around my right leg. My arms had tourniquets on them. My left legs were getting tourniqueted. And about this time, Doc's trying to get a IV going on my neck. I just remember him prodding me, you know, trying to get this thing going. And uh, I was like, man, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm out of gas. Like, I'm at the end of my life. And I was like, if I want to say something, now is probably my last chance, you know. And I just didn't know what I wanted to say, you know. Like, we were landing in a situation, you know. Right. You know, it's like you don't know what you're going to say when you have an hour to prepare yourself to go speak in front of a bunch of people. You know, let alone a situation like this. Like, what am I going to say? You know, so I only think to say was just tell everybody back home I loved them. Did like, at that point you believed this might be it? I might be dying right that, here. That that moment is when I kind of wondered. Right. You know? Up until that point, I thought, okay, if I can get out of here, I might have a shot. I might got a pretty good shot at surviving this. You know, but as as every second that ticked by, I started going, I don't know. It's getting pretty hard. Right. It's starting hard to breathe. It's getting hard to hard to do everything. You know. Right. And. uh I just remember telling everybody, just tell everybody I love them, you know. And it's like you know, just, you'll know who, you know. And the same people I've been talking about for the last damn nine months. <laughs> that's, right. that's who you're supposed to go tell I love, you right. know. And uh somewhere in there, and uh I just remember seeing my whole life start flashing before my eyes, you know, stuff as little as probably like four or five years old, you know. Um, you know, growing up at the racetrack, playing sports with my friends. Uh, was that the stuff that you were thinking about? Yeah. That's that's awesome. I mean, I, I hear that from people. You read that, right? But I've yeah. never heard anybody talk about it. Yeah. So those are the things that you started to think about being at home, being young, growing up, yeah. and all you the know, all riding the, my bike around. Right, Cleveland, the good you know? experiences, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just uh, 
I remember one of one of the most vivid memories I have is I don't remember who was up to bat. But it was like probably like sixth grade playing baseball, you know, and somebody just hits a ball, you know. I just remember being in the dugout and just going just going mad like a rave, you know, just going crazy. Your buddy just hit a hit, you know, and it was just a close game or whatever, you know. And I just remember that was one of my most vivid memories that I had of that of that time, like, you know, rolling in front of my eyes, you know, and I don't even like baseball <laughs> that much. You but know? you had but that, it was it was, the, it was the people I was with. That's what right. I realized was it was the people that I was with, you know. And 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 what I learned when Afghanistan, one of the things I learned in Afghanistan was it doesn't matter what you're doing; it really matters who you're doing it with. You know, it, I love that. Oh. Yeah. And uh, those guys just kept working on me, and I see my whole life flash from my eyes. And I and I, I just thought to myself, man, I'm I'm pretty lucky to have a life that I had, you know. And uh, all of a sudden, hear this woof, 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 and I was like, I was like, damn, that's chopper, you know. I was like, I can't be the guy that dies right now. Think kids here, and you know when you, when people say you got to dig deep, you know, you got to dig, you know, you hear yeah. that line over your whole life, you know, you got to dig deep. Uh, I really had to dig deep, you know. I remember like uh, reaching down with everything that I had. I had to draw one more. I just, I just told myself, you got to draw one more breath. Just draw one more breath. You need one more breath. So I just remember sucking in air as hard as I could. And those guys rolling me up on my left side, and they're sliding that litter underneath me. And it laid me down back on that litter, and me picked up, and we're hauling across this field. They slid me in the chopper, and I seen Sergeant Hurley sitting there, and it was the worst feeling in the world because I knew that I stepped on IED and I hurt somebody else, you know? And he's laying there, and he's all beat up, and he's he's you know, having a hard time. Uh, <laughs> he, got, he took a big piece of propane tank, basically bounced off him. And knocked him goofy. And I remember him looking at me and giving me not the most uh, uplifting words. <laughs> you know, he's very honest with me because <laughs> right. concussion. And uh, you can hear the rounds ripping off the helicopter. They're trying to shoot that thing down. And I remember the flight medic, or my medic saying, I put two tourniquets on each limb. You know, telling yeah. the flight medic what was up. And flight medic said, I don't give a shit. We got to go. And uh, he jumped on the on the bird, door slammed, and we were up and out in a matter of a tenth of a second, you know. And... Uh, he jumped on top of me, took his mask off. You know, the flight medics wear those masks so they can breathe them with all the wind and everything. He took that mask off, and he jumped on top of me, and he said, this is going to hurt, right? And I'm laying there basically dead, and I'm like, well, how bad can you hurt yeah. me, you know? Well, uh, he jumped on top of me, and he put this deal right in my sternum and started giving me fluid because they couldn't get an IV started because I had no blood in my veins to even start an IV, you know? And he punched this thing in my sternum, and I was like, oh, damn, I am so alive. <laughs> that hurts right. so bad. <laughs> And he started ringing out this bag IV fluid in me. And by the time he started the second one, I could talk again. I was telling him my name, my social, you know, all this stuff, who the president was. Finally landed at the airfield. And uh, I remember listening to that chopper shut all the way down. We had been on a ton of choppers. And I remember listening, this thing was just coming to a slow stop. And it kind of gave me a minute, and it kind of gave me a chance to kind of collect all my thoughts and process everything that had just happened. Do you believe at this point, Is this was this the turning point in your mind where you're thinking, I might make it? I was in limbo. I was in limbo, definitely. Like, uh, I was hurting. I was sucking. I knew that I just had to try to keep fighting, but I really didn't think I was going to. I really didn't know if I was going to make it or not. Right. I, mean, I felt a lot better now that I had fluids in me and everything. But it was it was, it was was pretty rough, you know? I've um, seen a lot of people die over there, and I, sure. felt, I felt like one of them, <laughs> right. honestly, you know? And uh, all of a sudden, that chopper door ripped open, and they pulled me out of there, and they put me in the back of this truck. And my, I'll never forget, clear as day, my anesthesiologist was on my left. My surgeon was on the right. And my anesthesiologist says to me, are you allergic to anything? And I was like, yeah, penicillin. <laughs> he kind of laughed at me. You know, He's like, I'm not really worried about penicillin right now. But, you know, and I was like, well, I am. I'm, I don't have any hands and I get hives. You know, that's right. horrible. <laughs> and uh, the surgeon looked at me and said, if you can stay awake for five more minutes, 
I promise you your life. And I was like, deal. You know, like, well, there's no downside to this bet, you know? Right. And uh, that's why I tell my book, Five Minutes. It was, the most, it was the most important thing that happened to me that day. I just need I'm the kind of guy that needs somebody to believe in me, you know? Somebody that right. says, you know, you can do this. You know, you can, you know, like, I need that, you know? And he's like, hey, you know, if you can give me five more minutes, I'll promise you your life. And I was like, okay, this guy obviously thinks that he's got a shot at saving me, you know? I'm going to bet on myself. On what are one. you thinking during that five minutes? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of time to think because we backed up to the right up to the hospital and and uh, the doors popped open on that truck and I always joke, thank God I didn't have to go into war with these people because that's when the chaos really started, right? <laughs> you know. And uh, the, they pulled me out. I remember it was like going down the hallway and it was like light, 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 hard right. And you know we have the world's greatest fighter jets, we have the biggest nukes, but we don't have heated operating room tables. It's ridiculous. That's the first yeah. time I ever jumped without legs. <laughs> it was so cold. I remember putting me on that table. And I could hear all this packaging getting ripped open. I can hear all these tools firing up, and they're we, you know, the, the, you can hear these saws just spinning, and and uh, you're thinking about everything, you know. But I felt so alone, you know, with all these people around me. I didn't know anybody. I'm laying there dying, and I just remember I wanted to say something to somebody. And there's this nurse. She was shaving my chest and putting these patches on all over me to read my heart rate and stuff. And I remember looking at her, and, and I, I just want to say something, so I felt like I was alive. And I was like, hey, you know, this is the first bone I ever broke. That's the only thing I could think to say. And she's like, well, you broke a lot of them. <laughs> and and she kind of giggles. And uh, then she just came over, and he's trying to put this mask on me, and I kept fighting him. And he said, well, what are you doing, you know? And I said, well, he ain't putting me out, you know? And I had a bet with a guy that I was going to stay away for five minutes. And he started yelling, Doc, Doc, Doc. And he's waving, you know? And, and Doc comes over, he's like, what's up, what's up? You know, he's kind of panicked, thinking I was you know, probably flatlining right there or something. And uh, he goes, uh, his guy said, you got to bet with him, you know, for the five minutes. He's like, oh, yeah, bud, you're in. Your five minutes is up. You can go to sleep now. And uh, I remember the anesthesiologist saying, hey, start counting back from 10. And, uh, you know, you're going to be going to sleep now. And uh, I remember there was a gal standing there with the incubator, intubator right over me, ready to show a tube down my throat and everything as soon as I was out. And... Uh, I kind of said, F you, man. My last thought on this planet is not going to be one. You know? Right. I started thinking about all those best times I've seen flash before my eyes when I was laying there on the battlefield. And uh, I've lulled off to sleep, you know? And uh, I would have, uh, I can't imagine that because at that point when they put you out, you still don't know if you're going to make it. That might be it, right? Yeah, but that's definitely not what I was going to think about. You know, I, right. mean, I didn't want to go into. Because it's a negative thought pattern, but it's like I'm just the average person just sitting at home is thinking because your mindset at this point, you're just fighting and fighting and fighting. But really, that's all I've known for the last year. Right now is to fight, you know, and I just thought, you know, when I roll into those gates, I want to be uh, I want to be looking pretty cool. You know, I don't want to be, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, right. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, I remember waking up and. Actually, let me step back one sec, just for one second. Is yeah. When I was going to sleep, I could remember hearing Hurley screaming, I don't want him to die alone. You know, I could hear him one curtain over, you know, they're working on him. Yep. And and uh, <laughs> I just remember lulling off to sleep, like I said. And uh, I go to sleep, and the next time I wake up, um, I see this, I still have a ventilator in, and I watch this gal go out of the room, the nurse. And I was like, hey, never mind. You know, I'll just lay here. The next time I woke up, um, I didn't have my ventilator in anymore, and my whole family was around me. And I remember opening my eyes, and I remember just like looking around without moving my head, you know, just looking around. It's kind of like when you wake up on a Saturday night after partying real hard, and you, were, do, and you don't know where you are when you wake up. <laughs> were, were, were you stateside at this point? Yeah. How long had you been out? Yes, I've been in a coma for almost a week, 
And uh, I remember waking up and and I see my family all around me and I close my eyes as fast as I can. I'm thinking to myself, what are you guys doing in Afghanistan? Right. Had no idea they moved me, you know? And then the next time I wake up, um, everybody's standing around me and everybody's talking to me. And it feels like, you know, when you watch like the Snoopy and everybody's like, wah, 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 you know? Yeah. That's exactly what it was like. You know, everybody's talking to me, but I can't understand anything they're saying. I can hear the, I can hear people talking. I can start to familiarize the voices, you know, I'm like, oh, I've heard that voice before, you know, and things like that. You know, I'm kind of, my my vision's kind of getting focused and I remember everybody talking to me and and finally one of the things that I heard was my dad say to me, Jack, you just say something so we know that you can hear us, you know? And I remember just looking at these people with the strangest, you know, for me, it was just strange. Like, what are you guys trying to comprehend everything? The first words that I mouth were, what do I have to do to get the hell out of here? (laughs) I did not want to be in the hospital. Right. It's not where I wanted to be. And uh, I spent two weeks in the ICU pretty much every day in surgery. Um, Sundays I pretty much had off. <laughs> right. And uh, I spent about 12 hours a day in surgery. Um, they reconstructed my whole right arm. I lost my thumb, my index finger, and part of my ring finger. Uh, I don't really have much function in the hand. Um, they drilled a whole rod right down the middle of my arm and attached everything to it. And they, all the skin on my arms is from my stomach or my core. You know, they had a skin graft all my arms to put them back together. Uh, I was right-hand dominant, so I had to really learn how to do everything with my left hand. Um, I had a really bad infection. Um, so once I got to the ICU, I was in an isolation room um, on the main orthopedic floor or whatever you want to call it. And I spent a lot of time in surgery there and uh, as well. And just started rehabbing, you know, and, and when I first woke up, that's when I had to realize that um, how I reacted mattered, you know, and I started learning all these life lessons, you know, and and how thankful and grateful I was to be a part of the greatest fighting force in the world. And when I got wounded, I got thrown in a helicopter and flown back to stateside to have the best surgeons, be put in the best machines to get the best imaging and all these things, right? As I just had to look at my uh enemy get drug off in the back of a station wagon into a mud hut <laughs> right know? I right mean, everything was perspective you know and uh i knew when i woke up I, I had to have a good attitude you know because i'm I was thankful and grateful you know and and still to this day in time i feel like i'm going down the wrong path i think about uh man some other get emotional talking about it, but i think about those guys that drug me off the battlefield that day you know and I think to myself, how how bad would it be to come home and live a life of being a, a whiner or a complainer or not do anything to contribute to this society? You know, the, thing, the one thing that I thought that I fought for was to have right. live in this greatest country in the world. And I'm going to come home and just lay in bed and watch the greatest country in the world go around me. You know, it's like, no, that's not going to happen. You know, so. I knew that when I and now, now every day now every day and even then especially I think to myself what was the point of even dragging me off the battlefield that day if I was just going to come home and lay in bed and wait to die you know and I was I, I will say I always say too that you know I I couldn't lay in bed and wait to die because I'm not that patient of a person anyways <laughs> but I think about those guys that drug me off the battlefield that day and and what a slap in the face it would be to those guys if I just would have came home and, and went down the wrong path or didn't live a life worth you know being proud of. You know? Right, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of the one of the the big things that pushed me when I first got hurt. You know, and I learned so many things going through my process. You know, of you know my left hand not working, and it was gonna be the only hand that I had. You know, every night when I went to bed, I'd have to put a towel in my hand. So when I woke up in the morning, my hand wasn't fist in a clinch. You know, clinching a fist. You know, because my muscles got tight overnight or whatever. You know, and and one of the first things I had to do was learn how to touch my nose. It sounds ridiculous, but. As soon as I could touch my nose, I could eat again, I could drink again, I could feed myself, my whole arms uh, skin graft together, 
screwed and plated together, you know. So, I mean, just trying to get this thing to work again. My shoulder's broken. Just trying to be able to do that, you know. And, you know, when we go through so many things in our lives, the first time we do them, we don't even remember. And most time we do, we learn how to walk. You know, none of us really remember how to walk, you know, growing up doing that. But it was definitely frustrating and challenging. You watch a baby walk now, they get mad, they get frustrated. I mean, I had to go through, I had to fight through a lot of the same emotions being 21, you know, and it was such a big pendulum swing. I mean, I went from wearing the American flag on my shoulder, being an infantryman, being put into a country where you could ask me to fulfill any mission that you asked me to, and I felt confident that I could do it, to now my goal every day is to wake up and try to touch my nose, you know? Or, right. Or like, hey, you know, whatever the mission, like, we're going to try to put clothes on you today. <laughs> like, is this really my life right now? You know, and I had to realize that, Yes, this is my life right now. I've already been here. I've done this before when I was a child, you know. Right. Now I just have to learn how to do it again. And, and so I set out to create the best new version of me every single day. And and, and uh, as I was going through this, I took a lot of notes and, and the things that were really important to me. And, and uh, that's kind of how I came up with my book, Five Minutes, 300 Seconds, and Changed My Life. Was it's, it's not really a book about war or anything like that. It's really a book of me getting wounded that day and the lessons that I learned after being wounded and going through that. It's a fantastic story. Rehabilitation from that point on, how long did it take you to get back to, because I, I, I'm telling you, you're sitting here in my podcast studio right now, and you had no problem getting from your truck into my house and into that chair, and you did it all by yourself. Yeah. You how know. did it, how long did it take you to get to that point? <laughs> yeah, it took a really long time. You know, actually, uh, um, uh, I was just with Matt here the other day, and he's like, what's this box underneath your truck, you know? And I was like, I used to have to sit on that so it could lift me up to put me in my truck because I wasn't even strong enough to get myself in there. You know, I could just sit there, you know. And and uh, it took me about a year to really feel like, you know, all my skin grafts were healed. And I could, I didn't hurt, like I could wake up in the morning and actually stretch without cramping up. And right. it really took me about a year to really grow into my new version of myself and really start figuring out how things worked, you know. And it took years for me to, you know, be able to just do anything with my right hand, you know, and, you know, just even learn how to incorporate it into my life, you know, and it took me a long time to figure out what wheelchair system was going to work best for me. It took me forever, you know, I mean, we didn't move into our house until 2014 and that was built really around my needs, you know, and until we actually moved into that house, you know, everywhere we lived was, was modifying things to the best of its ability to give us the best, you know, uh, quality of life that we could find, you know? Right. And so everything was a learning and growing process, you know, and I look at everything as an opportunity to learn. And uh, every time I do something, I learn something new, you know, and that's exciting to me, you know, and I can get better at things. And, and that part of being in my situation was, was I had to relearn how to be myself at 21 years old, you know? And so, uh, you know, I'm super lucky to have the people I did around me, you know, and, one thing that I really learned through this whole process is, is how important mentors are. You know, mentors, anything you want to do in this world, find somebody that's been successful at it before and stick in their hip pocket, you know, and have them teach you everything. I remember laying in the hospital bed and guys would come up that had been wounded already and they're like, this is how you're going to do it. This is, this is, you know, they're going to tell you to do it this way, but blow them off. This is how it's, everybody else is doing it, you know, and, you know, you latch on to those people and. I've always had mentors and everything that I've done now since being wounded because I realized how important it was to have somebody that's already been there and done those things. Right. It goes back to that that thought pattern that people can preach theory and all of these other things to you, but life in general, you wear it on your sleeve, so you want to find the guys with the experience. 
Yeah, I mean, right? yeah. I mean, if you want to do something, go to the guy that's already done it. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, he's got to figure it out. He's going to tell you what not to do and how to use it and everything else. You know, and and uh, I'm very lucky. I've had some really good mentors. I stay close to a lot of them. And uh, yeah, it's crazy as it sounds. You know, there there at the time that I was wounded. You know, the surge was going on in Afghanistan. There was there was a lot of us down there. To this, let's just here we are today. Uh, you're available for speaking engagements, by the way. You'd be, I mean, I can tell you right now, your story is riveting. There's people that are listening to it right now. But the book, the, it's five minutes is the name of the book. Yep. And you go into a detail a lot and talk a lot about the things. And again, you, like you said, it's not so much about up to that point, but what happened and how you approached life after. Yeah, absolutely. When I wrote the book, I didn't want to write this book. That I mean, I've, I've been fortunate that... Um, you know, I've been able to read a lot of books over my life time. And, and one thing that I hated was books that started out slow or took forever or felt like there was a lot of information I'm gonna, that really sure. wasn't really relevant. It was right. more of a brag, you know, than right. anything, you know. And my whole thing was, is I, you know, when you start reading my book, it starts out with the day that I was blown up and, and how I went through all those things, you know. And most people tell me within three hours you can read my book. You know, if you sit down on a flight, you can have that book read in one flight, you know. And I didn't want to have this big catalog of of this book that told this, this long drawn out because nobody really cares what kind of bike sure. I had when I was five, you know? Right. Yeah. Was, uh, that's kind of how I looked at it, you know? And I wanted to create something that, um, that I was very proud of and I am very proud of it. And, um, I wanted to share my story and have everybody an opportunity to learn the things that I went through without having to step on an IED. What? I mean, I, I there's a million lessons to be learned here, but what's the one thing anybody who's struggling in life in general what's the best piece of advice you'd give them well it doesn't even apply to me anymore is watch your step that's my number one (laughs) (laughs) no but uh really the one thing that i learned through going through all this is is honestly is is build your attitude and shape your perspective every single day because it's not something that all of a sudden that you're like today i'm going to be the most positive person in the world from here on out you have to make that declaration. You have to, you know, you have to do those things, but it's just not going to happen overnight. You know, you have to build your attitude every single day. And like I said, I have bad days too, but then I go back to remember where I was, who I was, where I came from, all of those things, you know? And so you have to build your attitude and shape your perspective every single day. And, and my tagline is build your attitude and shape your perspective. So one day when your life does flash before your eyes, it's worth watching, right? Right. Go out and do those things now because in one step, my life changed so drastically that, you know, the things that you might want to do when you retire, the things that you might want to do next month or whatever, might not be, might, you might not be able to do those things then. You know, go do the things that you want to do. Create those memories. Surround yourself with people that you really care about. Um, me and my wife ended up getting married then two weeks out of the hospital, and we have two little boys now, and, and um, she never left my side through it all. You know, it's, you know it really matters. You know, when life flashes for your eyes, make sure it's worth watching. Well, she's going to be in a lot of those those reels in my life that are worth watching because, um, you know, she, she's blessed me with, you know, so much of I'm the luckiest guy in the world to have her, you know, and, and she keeps me on track and gets me in the right place on time and takes care of me and, you know, I'm the, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. You can relate to this, but, you know, all of the things that happen on life in life, you have to, I got to get your shot on this because the, yeah. the best thing that ever happened to me, I didn't get till I was in my late 40s, but you're a father now. How? Yeah. And now you you understand that there's no greater feeling in life, is there? And you will never know that kind of love until you experience that. Yeah, one of the things I always tell my boys is I remember growing up, you know, you know, my family or whatever, you know, tell, you know, you hear people tell you, you know, your grandma or whoever it may be, you know, it just 
you know, you'll never understand how much I love you. Right, know? right. And, uh, you know, you're like, yeah, whatever, you know. And then all of a sudden I have this kid, you know, and I hadn't even been with him for six hours. And I'm like, man, I, lo I, I love right. this thing more than anything in the whole wide world, you know. And then I had two of them, you know, it's the greatest thing in the world, you know. And from my injuries, you know, I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to have kids, you know. And obviously it works good enough. But I didn't right. know if, if the both of them were going to, you know. And, uh, no, I'm super lucky. They're both healthy. They're, you know, what more could a guy ask for, really? You can't, you right. Know? And it's it's the greatest blessing in the world, and it's ta they've taught me more than I ever thought that I could. And I honestly believe someday they're probably going to teach me more than I've ever taught them. It's a fantastic feeling, isn't it? And just thinking, going back to that moment when you were laying out there, that yeah. all of that was still in front of you and you didn't know it. Right, you know, right? and I had so much survivor's guilt after going through that, you know, and, and the whole reason we were trying to get land out of there, you know, in October was, it was, because uh, his daughter was just born, you know. Sure. And, and, you know, and all these things, and I'm laying there on the battlefield thinking, you know, or sitting on the battlefield that day thinking, you know, why was it him and not me? Because at the time I had a girlfriend, we weren't even engaged yet. I had a 96 Bonneville and a bunch of stuff stuffed in my parents' room, you know I mean? Right. My, room, my, old, my old room from high school, you know I mean? Like, uh, it would have been a lot easier for me to go that day, you know, than him. You know, he had a daughter, he had a wife, a family. You know, he had all these things, you know. Right. And so dealing with survivor's guilt was a really hard thing for me. And I think that's probably what most guys struggle with the most when they come back. You know, you hear PTSD and things like that. Sure. You know? I really think survivor's guilt is honestly one of the worst things in the world to deal with because, uh, you know, we've all we've all done something in our lives where we feel guilty, you know, and we'll take that times 10 and carry that around with you every single day. You right. Know? It's a really hard thing to grasp, you know, and uh, – I just have to re realize that I fall back on my faith all the time, and I have to realize that I didn't write the story. I'm living it. Uh, it wasn't. My, I don't get to make the decisions of who lives and who dies, and, you know, those kinds of things. But I do need to be thankful and grateful every single day that I still am here, and I need to do everything I can to honor and and appreciate those guys that um, sacrifice their lives for this country. And and I have the most utmost respect for those guys, and those guys are honestly truly my heroes. And do um, you, you keep know, in touch with them? Um, the guys that I was with over there, yeah, yeah. So actually, that's it's, awesome. It's a, it's a pretty wild story. So uh, um, there's a guy that just moved here to Mankato, uh, Hurley, that was wounded with me that day. He called me and said, "Hey, you know, I'm looking for a fresh start. I don't know what to do." And I said, "Well, move to Mankato," and he moved up here on the first. That's so awesome. Yeah, the, it, you know what? The power of positive thinking and manifestation is a real thing, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, it's it's a really hard thing to 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 even maintain though, unless you surround yourself with like minded right. people, you know. And I'm super lucky that when I moved back here to Mankato, I got plugged in with the right people um, that really helped me be successful, you know, and and uh, continue to grow. Because you know, as we know, if you're climbing a mountain after so long, it gets exhausting. And if you look back and you feel like you've gotten nowhere, you still have all those ways to go, and you don't know how you're going to get there. Uh, doing it by yourself is difficult, but with, if you're with a team, it seems like it's a lot more easy and doable, you know, and, and uh, I've had to climb a lot of mountains since I've come home, you know, trying to figure out who I am or what I want to do or tried a lot of different things on, but, you know, I've surrounded myself here in, in Mankato with guys like Matt here, and, and uh, I'm super lucky to, to be tied into this network, and I always say, too, if you have to have something bad happen to you, you need to be from a place like here, you know, where, that you really feel like uh, you have a community backing you, and, and uh that was one of the other things, too, in the hospital. I felt like I could never give up because I'd have a mail cart coming with all this mail right. from people from here in Mankato being like, don't give up. We got your back, you know? And, right. And uh, it was truly humbling, you know? And uh, there's not really anywhere I go here in Mankato that I don't have a friend or 
somebody that knows my situation or, you know, you're unloading down at the ramp in downtown Mankato and you have 10 people come by and do you need a hand? Do you need a hand? Do you need a hand? And I read your book. It's great. You know, right. And, right, you know? and right. It's amazing. You know? So uh, on that note real quick, your book. Yeah. Uh, you're, if somebody wants to book you for a speaking engagement, yeah, yeah. Jack Zimmerman, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, yeah. So uh, if you want to buy a copy of my book, if you want to uh, have me come and speak to your school, your church, your organization, your company, whatever it may be, um, we can work you know, with any kind of time frame or anything like that. But the best place to do it is go to my website, jackzimmermanmn, as in minnesota.com. Jackzimmermanmn.com. Com. Yeah. In studio with us, by the way, hasn't said much, is of course my friend who I've known for about 20 years, Matt Little from the CBD Centers. Well, I mean, you can't talk when someone like Jack I know. is talking, right? Well, you've, we've tried to get this together for a while, so it's good to have it happen, man. And it's a talk, it's a, le- a lesson in resilience, right? I love this. 100%. This well, is, just- if, you want, if you need somebody to come in and motivate people, Jack's the guy. They well, and, you know, everyone thinks that Jack and I grew up together. It's like I didn't know him. I didn't know Jack with legs. I mean, I know him as right. You know, three foot nine or whatever you're saying. Three, three ten. I got three ten. Three ten. <laughs> I, I know him as three ten, but you know, you look at pictures. The dude was six foot at one point. Right. Six three. Yeah. Oh, six three. Sorry. Yeah. Those inches matter. I was, I was. I was. joke. You know, I got inverted real quick. I went from six three to three six real quick. <laughs> yeah. But he uh, obviously Jack. You met him. Did you meet him through the like your work with CBD centers? Uh, no, I met Jack through Beyond the L Ribbon. Um, oh, sure. It was yeah. you know a, a, a great initiative that started, but we saw you know soldiers going overseas. Their number one. Uh, so a lot of people don't realize like Minnesota reservists got sent over to Afghanistan and Iraq, like way more than what most typical yeah. units do. So the, the number one uh, question was: Is, is my family going to be okay when I'm gone? So the yellow ribbon was, you know, it's an old song saying tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Um, that's where they get the name from. But it's helping soldiers' family and wives and the people they left behind, you know, making sure that they were okay, plowing their snow, fixing right. their furnaces, making sure. And a lot of times, like in Jack's situation, where like Megan wasn't married to him, so she's got no rights, you know, as right. far as. The, mil- the, the military doesn't recognize her is what you mean. Correct. Yeah, right. exactly. So, you know. She couldn't get help from the military, so that's where Yellow Ribbon would really step in. And that's how I met Jack. I, I We owned a restaurant and bar, and, you know, he'd come in, and we'd give veteran discounts and just got to know him. I mean, you know, first time he ever, we did a big cookout for a fundraiser, and, you know, my dad, first time he ever met Jack, he rolls up, and he's like, well, where's your smoking part? And he's like, well, I always beat everybody. I don't got to put on my shoes and tie. <laughs> so it's like, you know, that's just Jack's personality. Right. So, you know, it's just, just that contagious type of personality that you meet and go boy my life's not that difficult right i the i actually did chat jack with you year a a few years back and uh, it was brief and that's why i love doing what i do now with the podcast we had a quick conversation on the radio because you and i were both working with uh denny terrell on the hot roast for heroes uh, which is a fundraiser that he does out at uh, one of the american legions here uh, locally, and uh, they raise a ton of money for Yellow Ribbon, which does great, a lot for uh, organization. Yeah, it is a fantastic organization. So again, this is by the way, you're my first guest in what I call George's Jungle, <laughs> and no, honestly, because the the podcast that my wife Jess and I do is uh, we have a it's a lot of the listening audience that we uh, took from radio and now have built even greater than that. 
uh, with, with, as we've moved into the podcast and more of the online stuff. But it's you know predominantly women, so I've always wanted to have a side that where I can talk to just anybody, Guys. and I like. You know, I like what would be considered ordinary people with extraordinary stories and and and, and all of these. I mean, because you just meet people every day, you know, not everybody's famous, like like a Hollywood actor or a rock star. I interviewed tons of those guys when I in my 30 years in radio. So and uh, one thing I've learned is that it's just guys that you meet. You don't even you might not know it. Right. You might not even know it that you'll just cross in life. And uh, I want to get more of those individuals, men and women. And get him in the chair and talk to him. So you're my very first one, man. <laughs> well, and I tell you what, it couldn't be better. Well, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, we're, we're super lucky to be from such a, a, a cool area, you know, here it in is. Minnesota. We have uh, so many people and just in our local area that are, are heroes in their own ways, you know. And uh, if I've learned anything going through uh, my my situation and things like that, it's it's uh, these stories need to be shared because... Uh, uh, I think generations um, far beyond us will need to look, look back and hear these stories and, and these people will look at as, as heroes for a really long time. And I got to do a plug that I'm trying to. So I got to bet with Jack. I want to get him on Joe Rogan. And I've emailed Joe <laughs> he, Rogan every day for months. Right. So I'm hoping that maybe even some of this and some of your listeners can join in and one man type into him. I get it. The guy gets probably millions of, but. Right. Know, Joe needs to interview Jack. He's got a story worth telling. It's, it's you're, you're, there, no doubt. And again, that's why I hope people share this and uh, and tell your friends about it, man, because I'd like to see more people. Because every once in a while, it's strange with podcasting. I was telling you guys this before we uh, started recording today, but it's, it's nice to have an unlimited audience, right? right? Terrestrial right. radio, even with the 100,000 watt stations that I worked for for so many years, it was a limited listening audience. It's nice to have a global, right, yeah. yep. audience yeah. now. I think, I think the beauty, especially be, beside you know, with what you're doing and everything now, is is if you're not tuned in at the exact same time and your phone doesn't ring and right. listen, you know, you can listen to this stuff, you know, when it's convenient for you. You know, once right. your kids have gone to bed at night and you're way into work in the morning, whenever it may be. I think that's the beauty behind it all. We don't have to. It is. I can sit here and tell you my whole story, and I'd be like, oh, just one sec, we got to cut to commercial quick, right? Then, you know. Right. Yeah, that so, I, I, I do love it. I tell you it's fantastic. So you're great at it. We gotta have we'll get you back in and talk more about C B D centers and stuff. But dude, Matt, I can't thank you enough for hooking this up because you arranged everything and it was hard to get it all together uh, with our busy schedules and stuff. So thank you, C B D centers. Jack, thanks for coming on. Man, you gotta come out on a regular basis. I mean, honestly, uh you're you're a guy that's inspirational and a lesson in resilience. And I'm a big believer, even you know, as old as I, the older I get, the more I believe in that positive thinking. But like you said, it's something that just doesn't happen. Your mind, just like your body and everything else you do, you have to get stronger the more you train it to think like that, right? Yeah, you have to make that choice every single day. That today I'm going to be the best version of myself, and this is what the best version of myself looks like. You know, when the hard things come at me. I'm going to make a decision that I'm going to be resilient. I'm going to push through them. And uh, when I do get weak, I know who I'm going to turn to. I'm going to turn to my buddies to my left and my right and say, hey, I need you to, you know, shoulder to shoulder here, help pick me up, drag me to this 10 feet, and I can take it from there, you know, whatever it may be. But, um, yeah, you just got to keep digging. All you know time. what we're going to talk about sometime is warfare. Yeah, motorsports. Sure. Race team, yeah. That's one of the inspirational stories, and I love hearing about it, and I follow you guys online, yeah, by the way. Sure. And well, I know how much dirt track racing means around not just this part of the country but it's it seems to be like gaining in popularity and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and there's a draw to it 
there, it's a real sense of community, right? Yeah. And the, and the guys that do it are super passionate about it, and it's 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 working its way out into the fan base is what it's doing. Absolutely, you know, and you see guys like Kyle Larson who just won a NASCAR championship are now spending most of their time they they race on dirt now yeah. more than they ever do on asphalt just because it's it puts on such a show. It's such a small, like you said, a sense of community. And uh, it's just uh, it's something about the American way, drinking beer, it watching is. cars go around on dirt as fast <laughs> as they can. I mean, it's very American. It's awesome. Jack, again, I can't thank you enough for stopping by, dude. Appreciate it for having me. Thank you.